And hello to you, and welcome to the Richard Nichols Podcast, the personal development podcast series that's here to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to be the best you can be. I'm psychotherapist Richard Nichols, and this is episode 188. It's titled Impulse Control. And if you're ready, we'll start the show. Hey there, pod fans. How's it hanging? We're over the hill, folks. Of 2020, anyway. It's August. What a write-off this year has been, eh? Can't believe I can't believe I stopped up on New Year's Eve to welcome it in. I wouldn't have bothered if I'd known it was going to turn out this way. But hey, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're localising the lockdowns if there are any sort of regional spikes in COVID cases. So hopefully we can all play our part, wear our masks and not spoil it by going out too much. I find it odd that if we come back from Spain, we're not allowed to then leave the house for two weeks. But we're allowed to go to a crowded restaurant and... uh, I've actually been encouraged to do so by the government to eat out to help out because the economy is so important and giving us half price government subsidized meals amazing and i think the reason it feels so conflicting is because we're being trusted to not take the mick but it's hard not to for some people i know the um the half price thing is capped at a tenner but there's nothing stopping us from having a half-price starter in one restaurant, half-price main course in another, half-price dessert at third place, every Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday throughout the whole of August. Or we could just wait. Just because the option's there doesn't mean we have to take it. And that's something I want to talk about today and how it relates to impulse control. I was chatting with somebody about controlling impulses recently because they'd never heard about the famous Stanford marshmallow experiments. And it's too easy for me to think that everyone must know about Walter Mitchell's old marshmallow experiment because it's it's so famous, but that's probably just my frame of reference. It's an experiment that doesn't work too well anymore because society has changed a little bit, but Back when it was first devised, back in the late 60s and then popularised in the early 70s, it helped us to understand a little bit about how we function. With this experiment, you ask a five-year-old in advance whether they prefer marshmallows, Oreo cookies or pretzels. And then this five-year-old is brought into a room with a table and a chair. On the table is their treat of choice. And they are told that if they want to eat their treat now... They can do. But if they're willing to wait for 15 minutes, they can have two treats. So some children gobble up the marshmallow the moment they get the chance, and some wait the 15 minutes to get extra treats. So Michel followed up on these children when they were older and did find that there was, back then, a correlation with those that had been able to delay gratification as a five-year-old and their ability later in life to focus on tasks and to work at exams to get into top universities that sort of thing when they were adults those children were less likely to have gambling or addiction issues and had higher paid salaries and so on now interestingly when this experiment has been replicated we find different results with each decade that goes by because it seems that five-year-olds nowadays are actually a little bit better at waiting for a treat anyway because they've had more practice Most homes with kids in it has a cupboard full of sweets. 
and they're regularly being told to wait before getting something. But back in the original study, things were a bit different, and and maybe the original experiment was a bit flawed, who knows. Anyway, my point about this is that there are still some children now that will take a marshmallow or whatever, and there are some that will wait. And what's worth looking at is what those patient children instinctively do to help them wait. It's the 21st century now, and because of technology, the world is a different place than it used to be. When I was a kid, if you wanted to play a video game, it used a tape player with a load of screeching beeps to make the ones and zeros that loaded an entire game into this computer's memory. So it took about five minutes for a decent game just to load. And Robocop, that took over eight minutes. Eight minutes to load it. That's eight minutes of this. Bit of nostalgia for some of you there. I swear, I spent more time loading games than actually playing them. And nowadays, if you want to play a game, you just pick up your phone and whoomp, there it is. And they're cheap or free, even. Everything's free nowadays, isn't it? You just have to watch an ad. Or you can pay to remove them, of course. That way you don't have to wait. And these companies are raking it in. For goodness sake, just wait. If I can wait eight minutes to play Robocop, you can wait 30 seconds to play Tetris. Yet, according to these marshmallow experiments... We do know, deep down, instinctively, how to wait. To some of those kids, it just came naturally. So what's the secret? Well, the best strategy seems to be some sort of mental distraction. The successful children understood that they were struggling and knew that they needed to do something better with their thoughts. Now, from a Freudian theory perspective, it's at that age where the ego is starting to learn how to control the id. Because the id, the instinctive animal inside of us, just wants biscuits. And so our ego says, all right, let's just sing a song to ourselves, shall we? Or they'd play with their pigtails if they had an ale. They'd tap a rhythm with their feet as if they were playing the piano with their toes. They distracted the id with something else. Some children said that they sang songs to themselves or used their imagination to think about other things. And we often use an analogy in Freudian theory, of the id being a horse and the ego being the owner trying to control it. And I see those children in the marshmallow experiments as being the owner of this horse that's trying to eat a big pile of hay. And you can either push on the side of the horse to try and force it to move away from the hay, or you can throw one of its toys onto the ground for it to go over and play with. Because a horse weighs half a tonne. And it's not so easy to hold it back, so it responds far better to distractions than it does to a shove. And I see our willpower as being a lot like that, because it's hard to use willpower alone to hold back our impulses. Willpower is like a muscle. If you if you keep using it, it gets tired and you'll cave in. So instead of holding yourself back from the negative impulse by trying to suppress the thought, you need new thoughts to replace them. And I know that might seem a bit petty to just go, la 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 la, I'm not listening to any intrusive thoughts. But the thing is, the the id, the horse, or the devil on your shoulder, however you want to think of it, it isn't rational. It's the same part of us that makes us want to laugh at a funeral, or the part that makes you think about jumping off when you're close to the edge of a tall building. 
And I know we all do that. It's not just me. Enough people have told me that they have these weird, intrusive thoughts. It's very normal. Might be a bit scary to some people, but genuinely it's quite normal to be standing at the side of a busy road waiting to cross and have a thought about pushing somebody in front of a bus or walking in front of it yourself. And this isn't because it's something that you'd like the idea of. It's because it's something that you'd hate the idea of. And I think it's worth knowing, actually, that we all do this. I know I've spoke about it in the past, but I've had clients who are new parents that say they have this intrusive thought about killing their own baby. Really extreme thoughts, you know, throwing it out of a window and things like that. And these thoughts terrify them. Yet, actually, it's quite normal for us to focus on the things that frighten us. That's how the brain keeps us aware of threats. It's just that for the last few hundred thousand years, the things that we fear have changed quite considerably. Our intelligence, our ability to think and worry comes at a cost. And so the fear response is also the same signals as feeling jealous or feeling angry or feeling hopeless. But by trying to resist thinking about these things, it's going to make those thoughts come more often. Because those thoughts become attached to fear, which we've evolved to focus upon. So it all goes round and round and round, getting stronger all the time. Like thinking about food makes you hungry. Thinking about money makes you gamble. Thinking about bad consequences makes you feel worse. Do you know the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Imp of the Perverse? It's about um, self-destructive impulses where a man gets away with murder for years, inheriting his victim's money. And as long as he keeps saying to himself, I am safe, he feels confident. But when he thinks to himself that he will remain safe only if he isn't foolish enough to openly confess, then his thoughts become focused on confessing rather than feeling safe. And in the story, he has a mental breakdown and confesses. It ends badly for him. All because of his imp, his devil on his shoulder. Freud's id that whispers the deepest, darkest things. And we've all got one, and we wouldn't be human without it. Sometimes it's louder than other times, and some people have it louder than others naturally anyway, but there are no rules as to what's normal and what isn't. Is it normal to obsess over something? Well, it's normal to be able to. Yeah, I'm sure I've spoken about um, Dan Wegner's ironic process theory before. It's sometimes called the white bear phenomenon because Wegner was able to create obsessive thoughts in people by simply asking them to not think about a white bear for five minutes. And the more they tried to not think about it, the more times they did. That's why it's called the ironic process theory. And what later experiments showed is that this same process influences all sorts. In one study at the University of Wales in the mid-90s, it was showed that by deliberately suppressing thoughts about the stereotypical behaviour of a skinhead man, people would sit further away from someone than if they hadn't been suppressing thoughts. Very cleverly done. What they did is they paid some undergraduates a pound, a whole pound, to take part in an experiment that they were told was about people's abilities to construct life event details from visual information. That's what they were told. And they were each shown a photo of a, a white male skinhead. If you're too young to know about skinhead culture of the 80s, what started off as an apolitical fashion and music statement, really, that started in the 60s, turned 
kind of mostly hard right and racist by the mid-80s. So although there were lots of anti-racist skinheads, there was also a lot of violence and negative connotations with being young and shaven-headed and denimed up. So these participants were shown this photo and were told that they had five minutes to compose a brief story that detailed a typical day in that man's life. But half of the participants were also told that a previous study had showed that we could be easily biased by stereotypical misconceptions, and so they were asked to deliberately not think about the behaviour of a stereotypical white skinhead man. And then they did a couple of different things. Some people were then shown another photo of a different skinhead man, and were asked to spend another five minutes writing about them, but they weren't reminded about the need to avoid stereotypical thoughts. What they found is that if they'd been suppressing them for the first guy, the little stories about skinhead number two had way more stereotypical content than the people who were not told to suppress their thoughts at all. And another version of the study was that after writing that first passage, the people were told that they would get to meet the person in the photo and they were taken into another room. Now, some had been told to suppress their thoughts and half hadn't. So when they walk into this room where this bloke is supposed to be, there are eight chairs in a line and there's a bag and a denim jacket on the very first one, but there's no bloke. And they were told he'd probably nipped out to the loo and he'd be back in a bit. But could they just take a seat and wait for him? And they could sit wherever they wanted. Those that have been told to suppress their stereotypical thoughts consistently picked seats that were further and further away from the man's jacket than if they hadn't been told to suppress their thoughts. So we know that trying not to think about things will rebound soon after and make us think, feel or behave even more like the version of ourselves that we're trying not to be. So if you're looking for a lesson to learn from the old marshmallow test, it's that we shouldn't focus quite so much on the importance of teaching ourselves or our kids to delay gratification. Instead, it's better for us to focus on finding ways to exert control over our thoughts and behaviours through awareness and understanding. Whether this is about food, gambling, alcohol, porn, anything can be addictive if we associate it with pleasure. And stopping these thoughts and urges isn't as black and white as people might think. But it's easy to assume that it is, especially if it relates to obsessive thoughts. It's easy to think that you only have the two options to either give in to our urges and hope the thoughts just stop, or try as hard as you can to stop the thoughts. But if we can accept our thoughts or our urges and understand them rather than fearing them, we're going to be in a better place. Because... I do wonder if that's the reason for the rebound. That if we're deliberately trying not to do something, then our instincts assume it's something that could be dangerous to us and so focuses on it more rather than less. And this is why talk therapy helps so much. You get to talk about the urges and understand what's going on underneath. Like the compulsive gambler that can't stop thinking about his next bet, even though gambling is probably going to end his marriage and make him lose his home. He's not addicted to fear, but he's addicted to something else that is meaning he's living in fear. And to just stop the gambling won't stop the emotion. He might be able to see other emotions, though. He might be able to see that it's self-esteem he's looking for, not a win at online poker. But a part, a part of him thinks that winning would stop him from feeling guilty about losing in the past. 
it would stop his wife from kicking him out and stop his fear. But when the directors of Bet365 are one of the wealthiest people in the country, you know that something's not quite right there. But understanding and accepting the urges and knowing why they're there, even if there is no real reason other than, well, I have OCD, my brain sends things into a tailspin sometimes, which is a whole different ballgame. But even then, at least, it starts with some understanding and acceptance that this is what's happening and this is how I'm feeling and it is what it is. But with simpler urges and compulsions, it's easier to distract ourselves. I don't know what your equivalent to the marshmallow instant gratification is. We can feel addicted to almost anything. It might be marshmallows. It might be hobnobs. It might be thinking about the heat death of the universe. Whatever it is, if you need a distraction from the thoughts, then you may well need to learn the opening rap to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or something. I've said before that TV themes can work quite well as a distraction. Having an earworm stuck in your head is going to be better than the thoughts of self-harm or of a loved one having a car accident. Bohemian Rhapsody's got a good one as well. That's helped me out quite a few times when I've been struggling with something. Now then, it's getting late. But before I disappear, I want to thank a few people who came on board last month and became patrons of the podcast. We have Martin, Carol, Patrick, James, Steve, hooray, uh, Lorianne and Karen. Thank you so very, very much with... Um, only occasional exceptions. This podcast series has been monthly, pretty much monthly from day one. So taking a day off each week to make a patron-only episode has been um, expensive, but doable with your support. And I am forever grateful, genuinely. There was a period in 2015, 2016, where I was making one in the middle of the month as well, which which proved very popular at the time, but but I, I, I just couldn't keep it up. The there wasn't enough hours in the day. Um, but I am very seriously debating whether I make two episodes per month um, for the public at some point. But I do need a few more patrons first to be able to make that happen. But I reckon it's probably only going to take a few more. I'll do the maths and work it out. But if you'd like more episodes from me right now, then jump over to patreon.com slash Richard Nichols and you'll get a patron-only episode every Monday morning, as well as access to many, 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 many previous ones as well, which would be amazing. So... Enjoy your August. I will be back soon. All right, folks. Take care.